You're listening to a message from the Church at Martinsburg. For more information about the Church at Martinsburg, visit martinsburgchurch.org. My name is Josh McLean, and, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Church at Martinsburg. And last week, uh, I had the, the privilege of beginning a, a series, a new series, entitled Who We Are. And so I'm really excited about jumping into the second part of that five-part series on Who We Are. Uh, last week, we took a look at our identity, and we tried to define who we were as a people. And the, the text that we looked at last week, or the, the, the sermon, was based out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, uh, and the title of that sermon was People Helping People Find and Follow Jesus. It's all over our loop. It's, on, it's in, on the cards in the seat back in front of you. It's everywhere. But we tried to really wrestle with that idea of people helping people find and follow Jesus. Is that biblical? Is that our identity? And we found out this. We, we saw that, that our identity, that what we do, rather, does not define our identity, but our identity does drive what we do. So that was pretty interesting. What we do does not define our identity, but our identity does drive what we do. And we saw that because we have been reconciled through Christ, that we therefore become ambassadors for Christ. We've been reconciled through Christ and we become ambassadors for Christ. So, so church, that is our identity. That's, that's our job. That's what we do. That's our mission statement. We are a people helping people find and follow Jesus. So that's great. That's, that's who we are. And, and t- today we'll begin to look at our values. So we've got four values. Here we've got a lot of things that we hold dear to us, that we say these things make us unique as a church. But we've got four that stand at the top. I want to take the next four weeks beginning today and to walk through those values. And the first value, as Pastor AJ alluded to, is this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Perhaps you as a believer this morning, uh, a Christian sitting here uh, amidst uh, this congregation, you might be scratching your head and you might be thinking, uh, what is all about Jesus? You know, the statement seems clear, right? It's all about Jesus. But what is all about Jesus? Everything? Do you mean everything in my life is about Jesus? You might be asking yourself, I'm not, I'm not bucking this. I'm not challenging you. I'm just trying to be clear here. Pastor Josh, are you saying that everything in my life is all about Jesus? Are you saying my education, the pursuit of that, my job, my, my personal relationships, are you saying they're all about Jesus? To that I would say yes. As we look at the scriptures this morning, I think you'll find that answer. That Yes, everything. It's all about Jesus, your education, your job, your relationships, what you have and what you don't have, what you aspire to be and what you hope for. These are all about Jesus, or at least they should be. I don't pretend that everybody here this morning is a, is a Christian. I don't pretend to believe that everybody here this morning believes what I'm saying right now. And so I want to address you real quick. First off, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And I want to I share with you some, some scriptures that might help you to, to come to see the truth of who Jesus is and what he, what he should mean to you. But you might be asking a different question. You might be asking this morning, just in, just in, in sincerity of heart, why? Why is everything about Jesus? Why do Christians say things like that? Uh, and I admit, it, it does seem strange at, at first glance to think that some archaic guy that that lived and died 2,000 years ago, why would he have bearing on our lives today? Why would we say of that man that it's all about him, life and everything, everything's about him? Why would we do that? We don't do that for other historical figures. We don't do that for George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr. We don't do that. We don't say it's, what would Martin Luther King Jr. do? We don't say those things. 
Why do we say it's all about Jesus? Why do we go that way? What's my desire this morning to answer that concern and to show you Jesus in all of his glory as the supreme and sovereign Lord of all that is and all that ever will be. The Bible passage that we'll be reading this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, um, it can be considered a summary of the entire narrative of existence. It's the one big story. It's a summary of that one big story. And it hits on all the main points in that passage, just those few short verses. It tells us everything that we need to know. And I love stories. Do you guys love stories? Sometimes I could be in danger. You could be in danger of hearing me tell stories all day long. And I try to, try to hold back, but I do love stories. And some of us, we're not create, we don't have a creative writing degree. We don't have an English. We're not, we weren't English majors. But, but, but uh, maybe you know this, that stories have essential components. Did you know that? Almost every story has the same essential components, that, and there's five of them, and it's some, some people classify them as a little bit different and varied here, but typically there's five components, and they are this, the character, the setting, the plot, the, the conflict, and the resolution. And so the, the, the characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict, and the resolution. And these essential elements keep the story running smoothly so the, the hearer or the reader can, can, can stay locked in and, and understand in a logical way. And the setting, it provides the context. It tells us where it's happening at. And the, it, it, if it's a good writer, it'll really paint it up right so we can actually see and smell everything that is there and feel what's happening in the context there. And then the plot, it's the storyline. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, and it progresses. It's the, it's the main bones of the story, the storyline. And the conflict, that's where the story begins to get good. It, it has a resolution as well, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a climax in between the, the conflict and the resolution. It's tied into the conflict, but you got the conflict, then you got the resolution. And, and the resolution is where it all gets settled. It's where it all just co finally comes to an end. And see, all of those things are key and pivotal. They, they all connect to the characters. So who are the characters of the story? Those are, that's always an important question. And specifically, there's one, uh, one character that we always look to. We always, we always notice it first. It, it stands head and shoulders above them all, and that's the, that's the protagonist. It's the hero. It's the story. It, it's, it's the character that unlocks the meaning of the story. And he's typically the one that resolves the conflict. And if you are a Marvel fan, it's a good time to be alive, isn't it? There's a lot of good stories happening right now, right? You see those five things happening, and it's just on repeat. But it, it's the same thing in Star Wars and every episode of Star Wars. It's the same thing in every episode, whether it's DC or Marvel. It's the same thing. But back in 2008, there was a, a movie that was released. It was called Iron Man. And Iron Man tells the story. It's an origin story of Tony Stark becoming Iron Man. It's a pretty interesting story, and at the very end of the movie, I think it's a post credit scene, we, we are introduced to special agent Nick Fury, and he tells Tony Stark that he is not the only superhero. <laughs> Minds blowed, and ensue the onslaught of, 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 of origin stories. And since that time, half a dozen or more people have said, I want an origin story, and they give him an origin story, and now we know how, you know, they're... But, but the first story all began, right, in the MCU universe. It all began with Tony Stark becoming Iron Man. And now everything else fits into that at some point. And you know, the, the, the big story, the real story, his story, history, 
It is one large story, and it's summarized here in chapter 1 of Colossians 15 to 23. And we see the protagonist as Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that sees the conflict come, and he resolves the conflict. And this is a beautiful story. True to form, everything in this story, everything in this main large meta-narrative is all about Jesus. He unlocks everything. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, and we'll read there together. If you don't have a Bible, we have several available for you on the back tables. Um, you can use those this morning. We've got small regular print and large print, and you can use that this morning. Take that home. That's our gift to you. Um, so yeah, you can, you're welcome to use that. But before we jump into the text this morning, Colossians chapter 1, we'll read 15 to 23. Before we do that, I want to just share a few things with you. I think it'd be helpful to, to understand the context of the passage that we have here this morning. And so at the time of of writing, the church at Colossae, which is whom Paul writes this letter to, they were facing a doctrinal battle. They had some pretty serious issues about the identity, related to the identity of of Jesus. Who was he? Who was this protagonist? Who was the hero here? They had some of their facts messed up. And there were some teachers that were in the church that were influencing the people to believe things that weren't true. They insisted that Jesus was not actually God, but that he was some sort of human representative of God. Still, others taught that Jesus was God, but uh, not so much just, just in human form, though. It was only an illusion. This, the church began uh, to, to have issues with the, the gospel, and it was being diluted by foreign doctrines. It was becoming synchronistic. It was mixing different doctrines that uh, were uh, not so good. And they were mixing them with the good, and the, the, the end is it's just bad, bad doctrine. So the understanding of Jesus as the hero of today's story it was being misunderstood, and Paul He aims to correct their dangerous misunderstanding. So in verse 15, we'll begin reading. He says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He's the beginning, the, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his word. Church, would you pray with me? God, these are your words this morning, long preserved and available today for our benefit. We come to them this morning for that, for a benefit. Father, we, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, we would see Jesus, your son, not in a skewed manner, but just as he is. We would see that he is the point of the story, that he is the protagonist, he is the hero. We'd set all other things aside that we've had our eyes on, that we've fixed our eyes on, that we've worshiped, that we've glorified. God, forgive us for that. Forgive us for that. Help us to see Jesus as he is. Holy Spirit, would you guide us this morning as you teach us of him who sent you, Let us see Jesus as sovereign over creation. Let us see him as sovereign over the church. And we pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've looked at the text this morning, I believe that we'll see two important questions answered. 
Two important questions answered. The first is this, is Jesus Lord of creation? And the second, is Jesus Lord of the church? So is Jesus Lord of creation? And is Jesus Lord of the church? And so before we go any farther, let's define the the term Lord. In verse 3, you'll see that Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord. He's speaking to the church at Colossae, so Christians here. He says, Jesus is our Lord. So Lord, what does that mean? Well, it's a translation of the word curious, curios. And it's the general uh, Greek word for master. And it's used uh, by someone who is in submission to another. And so basically, it indicates a level of sovereignty or rule. So Paul is saying of Jesus, he's saying that Jesus is our ruler. He's, He's submitting himself. He's saying that Christians submit themselves to the sovereignty of God. And we might say, well, why would, why would we do that? Why is God, why is Jesus, rather, sovereign over creation? Well, let's look at that. As we've already noted, it was, it was a hit, hit or miss for the Colossians as to whether Jesus was Lord over creation or not. They were a bit confused. And so Paul had his work cut out for him regarding the deity of Christ or the godness of Jesus. And so in verse 15, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Some readers today would look at this verse to to prove text that Jesus was not God, but that he was only a picture of him. And it's ironic that the very phrase that God was using to clarify, to bring clarity to the church here, is now actually used to distort. So take a a closer look at the language used there. It, It says that Jesus is the image of God. And if we contrast that statement, that Jesus is the image of God, with a statement found about man in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it's It's striking. The significance is, is, is fantastic. It says in verse 26 of, of chapter uh, 1 in Genesis, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock. And skip on down to verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Adam was created, listen, in the image of God. But in Colossians, we read that Jesus is the image of God. You see, words matter. It's a very small word. It's a slight difference. But Jesus was the image, is the image of God, and Adam was created in the image of God. And so it's quite different. Paul is contrasting these two passages, and it's really helpful for us this morning. And so Adam uh, had a beginning while Jesus did not. And Adam was in God's image while Jesus was God's image. So let me just share something with you guys real quick. This has been helpful for me, and I want to share it with you guys. So Pastor AJ mentioned this morning some information on how we can be a part of the search committee, how we can help them, how we can help to, to, to create this survey, and we can have an input in it. And I think that's, I want to just echo that. I want to just repeat that to you guys. This is a great opportunity for you to, to serve this body by pray, uh, prayerfully filling out that survey. And so take the time necessary to do that. And as you do, I want you to be praying uh, for our new pastor, whoever he is, that God would begin to prepare him. Pray that God would give you wisdom as you fill out that survey, that you could communicate the correct information, that you'd be sensitive to the the leading of the Spirit. And pray the same things for the search committee. And while you do all those things, I just want to pastorally love you in this. When we find the new lead pastor for the church at Martinsburg, I'm going to tell you this, he will be made in the image of, of God. He will not be the image of God. Do you, do, you, do you get that difference? Just remember that. We want to remember this, that, that the, the man that God is preparing, that he is leading here for us, that he's just going to be made in the image of God, just like you and just like me. 
And so pray for him, that God, would be, that, that God would just encourage him, that God would renew his heart, that God would give him a vision for the ministry here at the church at Martinsburg, and that we would be patient through this process, that we would rest on the Lord. But anyway, let's get back to it. The Greek word translated image in verse 15 is icon. It's the word icon, and it's where we get our word. Can anybody guess? Icon, right? It, the Greek word for image is icon, and, and it, so in this day and age, it, it could mean a symbol or a graphic representation maybe on a screen, and it represents something that is real, but it's not real. It's just a picture of it. And in, in, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, when this is being written here, uh, icon means something slightly different. It, it can mean a representation, but it also can mean a manifestation. So it can mean representation and also can mean representation. And when Paul speaks here that Jesus is the image of God, he's not just saying that Jesus is, the, is a representation of God. He's saying that he is the manifestation of God. He's saying that he is the real deal. He is God in the flesh. So both of those meanings are true about Jesus. So you've got, you got picture and then you've also got presence. You've got representation and you've got manifestation. They're quite different, but do you remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when there's a, there's a pronouncement, there's an announcement about Jesus being born, and it gives us another name for Jesus. Remember it? It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. This prophecy about Jesus that was a, who was about to be born, it says, call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? He means that God is with us. He's not, a, he's not just a representation of God. He doesn't come as a messenger only. He's not a prophet of God. He is God. God with us. What, a, what an awesome statement that we can claim this morning, that Jesus is, is God in the flesh. He's not a representation alone. He is the manifestation some would still look at this passage and claim that, that this verse actually speaks of Jesus only being a symbol of God. And so let's continue to do some work here. It's helpful to look at that statement under this light. But the Bible says that no man can see the Father, and yet Jesus tells his disciples that when they've seen him, they've also seen the Father. Think about that. So God is the, God the Father is a spirit and therefore invisible, but, but Jesus is visible. He's the visible portion of God. He's the representation and the manifestation of God. God, but he was also human. So in other words, Jesus is the visible portion of the Godhead, and historically, you'll remember that God was opposed to people making idols in his likeness. He was, he was against that. There was a, actually a command, right, given against that. How silly it was, or it would be, for a man to, to create an image of God and then to worship that. They could never do him justice, never. Worshiping something made of clay or stone, some type of an image it will never do justice. In verse 19 and in chapter 1 of Colossians says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's never been said of a stone idol. That's never been, been, never been said of something made of wood. It's never been say, said of an icon on a phone or some sim, simple representation of God. It's only ever been said and been true about Jesus. There's, there's a description of Jesus here that also at, that at first glance would seem to undo and to damage this view that I'm saying that Paul holds, that I believe that Paul holds of Jesus, and that's in this term, firstborn. So look at that in verse 15, that he's the firstborn. It seems here that Paul is saying that Jesus was born or that he had a beginning, and actually, this word simply means premier one. It simply means premier one, and it can point to being first in sequence, so first in order, or first in significance, so highest priority. 
It could mean either of them. It could mean both of them, firstborn. It doesn't actually mean born or created. And in fact, if Paul would have been saying that, this, that Jesus was a creation, he was a creature, a creaturely being like you or I, he would have used an entirely different word altogether. But he didn't do that. He uses the word that means first in sequence or first in significance. Some of you may know uh, this about me. I come from a pretty large family. So I actually have four sisters and four brothers. Now, it might be too early and it's rainy outside, but that's nine, okay? Sometimes I forget, but there's nine full brothers and sisters in my family. My parents are both crazy, okay? So, so just imagine this. I hear people all the time talking about privacy. What is that? Okay, we lived in a small house. I never had my own room. I don't want to hear you kids crying about that. Parents, if you ever need help, just ask me. I'll help you out, okay? I don't want to hear that crying. I'll, I'll, you don't want to hear me complaining, so I'll, I'll move on. But there was a period of time where I, so by the way, you might be wondering where I'm at in the order. I'm number seven of nine. So I'm, I'm, number, se- I'm number seven. It took, took a while, but I finally came and everything. And they, so they tried to put on the brakes once I got there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so I, I, I roomed with my oldest brother, Michael, he was the firstborn in many ways. He was the first brother born in, in sequence. And I roomed with him for a long time. And my brother Michael was tough. He was bigger than us. He, was, he could punch harder than any of the brothers. He could run faster than any of us. And he was better at any game, whether it was physical or mental, it didn't matter. He could destroy us in every single way. And obviously, Michael, he's older than us. He'll always be older than us. He'll always be the oldest brother in our family. But it doesn't always mean that he'll be the strongest. It doesn't always mean that he'll be the fastest. I remember the day that I realized that that was true. There was a, there was a fight going on, and he lost. And I thought, oh, my goodness. It was like, how the mighty have fallen, right? Uh, it was unbelievable how that had taken place. So I told you about my oldest brother, but now I want to tell you about my youngest brother, my baby brother. His name's Nathaniel, and he's not so much a baby anymore. He towers over me at 6'2". And he weighs 240 pounds. He's won the Tough Man title in Berkeley County two times. They won't even let him compete anymore. And he won a, golden, a regional Golden Glove title as well. He is one bad dude. I don't want to mess with him. I don't want to pick on him. Not even with a stick. Not even like, I, would, I, don't, I don't want to fight with him. I don't, he's too tough. He's too big for me. All right? So you see the, the oldest, Michael, he is first in sequence. But Nathaniel has now surpassed him in his first in significance. As it relates to the boxing ring, Michael would be first in sequence, but he is not first in significance. Nobody's going to touch him. Nobody's going to try to compete with him. And this is what Paul's trying to say about Jesus. He's trying to say, yes, he is first in sequence. Yes. Now, he wasn't, he's not been born. There's not been a beginning to Jesus. He is eternal God, always. And he is first in sequence, but even more than that, he is first in significance, Paul is trying to say here. He is the most important. Everything is about him, Paul is trying to say in that word, in that text. Firstborn. So he's not trying to say he, he had a beginning, but that he is the most significant. And it actually speaks of his involvement in creation. That he predated all of creation. He was existent before then. And not only was he preexistent, but he's preeminent because he did create. So we know that when the creation account unfolds in Genesis, that Jesus is present in the Trinity. It says, let us make God in our own image. That's the Trinity communing together, having community group, talking together. Let's make man in our own image. 
And in John 1, we come, away to under, we come away from there understanding that Jesus is an active creation. He's an active agent, rather, in the creation of the world. And I think that it's worth reading that poetic introduction. So I'm going to read that for you this morning. It's in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of the word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then I'm going to skip down to verse number 9. That was verse 5. We're going to skip down to 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. The word is, without a doubt, a reference to Jesus Christ himself. And Paul, in, in Colossians... And John, in the, in the gospel of John, along with all creation, and us this morning are all in unison co- together proclaiming that Jesus is God. And in addition to that, Jesus made everything. Look at verse 16 and 17, back in Colossians chapter 1. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible or visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a massive truth. What a fantastic truth that Jesus is not only God, but he is creator. He's the creative agent and sustainer of all things, including you and me. What what does that mean, that he holds all things together? Suffice it to say this, that if Jesus, having been the active agent in creation, were to cease his ongoing work in creation, creation would cease to exist. He, by him, all things hold together. By him, all things hold together. And that's a, that's a relieving thought, isn't it? Some of you this morning, I, I, I truly take a moment and think about that. You're tense right now. You're sitting in your chair and you're, you're anxious You're worried about the week that's been in the past. You're worried about the week ahead of you. What will happen? Can can, can you work it all out? Can you you make it? Can can you hold things together? Right? We say that. Can you hold it together for one more week? You're worried about that this week. You're worried about your family. You're worried about your finances. You're worried about your job. Some of you may even be worried this morning. Will the sun rise tomorrow? I want to just comfort you with these words here that we find that That Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the world, he holds all things together, not you. I'm not not inviting you or encouraging you to be lazy or to be slothful or to be ignorant, not at all. Work hard. Do the best that you can. Wrestle with difficult issues and tasks ahead of you. But in all of that, just know this, especially on this, the Lord's Day, that Jesus, by him all things consist. By him, all things hold together, from your finances to your family. Think of, think of your children, even. Think of your future. God controls every bit of that. It's cons- it consists. It stays together. It holds together and finds its meaning in Jesus. Tim Keller says that you're unqualified for the job of God. Some of you this morning, you've walked in here and you've picked up that task and you didn't even realize that you'd done it. But you've been walking around with the badge, boss, Right? Creator and sustainer. You've picked that up somewhere. Why? That's heavy. It's too heavy for you. Lay it down. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. 
you're unqualified for the job of God. And David, when he's thinking about this, when he's thinking about this creation that God has made and how intricate it was, even in his uh, ignorant, to some degree, understanding of what he was looking at, he still says this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David, David says, I, I, I'm just I'm dumbfounded. I, I can't believe the work that you've created, that you're making this whole thing work. Why do you even worry about me? I, you love me, and I don't know why. Would that be your muse this morning? Would that be what you think about this morning? That God, as he works all these things together, as he makes the world go around and sustains it, that he has thoughts for us, that he cares for us. I think it would be fitting for us to, to rest there this morning, to take off the mantle of God as sustainer and creator of the universe, to set it aside and just to think about the fact that God would take time to care for us. These, uh, these verses effectively that we've just looked at, 15 to 17, they effectively undermine a barrage of false beliefs, one being atheism because there is a God. His name is Jesus. He's eternal. He's pre-existent, creator and sustainer of the universe. Atheism, it's challenged. Deism, because Jesus is actively involved in the work of creation as he sustains it. Islam, because Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is the very son of God. And as well, Judaism, because Jesus is the Messiah, but not just the Messiah, Messiah as well. He is the creator and sustainer and judge of all the universe. Hinduism, because Jesus is not Vishnu, just reincarnated, but he is eternally a member of the Godhead. This true story, this true narrative here helps us to see the identity of Christ, the identity of the, the hero, of the protagonist. And there's a ton of implications that are pouring out of these verses, and chiefly among them is that in all of creation, it must submit to the will and authority of Jesus Christ. We read in the gospel that Jesus, creator of the heavens and the earth and sustainer of everything in them, tells a storm where to park it, and it listens. He, he tells it to stop, and it does. A storm. Think about that. How many of you guys right now are thinking, I'm so tired of the rain? Do you really wish it, we could all together just go outside and just scream at the... Some of you are like, no, I like the rain, right? I'll point them out to you later. You guys can mob and attack that person. Uh, yeah, we wish we could just go outside and we could just say, stop! Stop raining! Enough! Right? Our houses are floating away. Let's stop. Okay? We know that the corn needs rain, but we've had it. Okay? But we can't do that. We, 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 we can't do that. We're not, we don't have the ability to just tell a storm, tell clouds to go away. But Jesus does. Imagine Jesus, he just speaks light into existence. Before the sun was even created, Jesus says, let there be light. Right? The Godhead, let there be light, and boom, there's light. Before the sun has even been, ex been created, Jesus can do that. Jesus tells a crippled man to, 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 to put those things aside, the crutches, to put his bed aside, to stand up and walk. Oh, by the way, clean this stuff up and get it out of the way, take it home with you, right? That's what Jesus tells a man to do. That. He tells a dead man, dead in the ground for three days in the grave, hey, come forth, get out of there. You've been, you've been laying down long enough. It's time to get going. Jesus' authority is demonstrated throughout the Gospels. Let me ask you this this morning. Are you 
submitting yourself to that authority that Jesus demonstrates? Are you submitting yourself to the, to the authority that Jesus is given or, or it's, it's, it's shown in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 uh, through 18? Have you, are you submitting yourself to that? The universe around us does, and we should as well. Colossians chapter 1 shows that Jesus is, is not just some guy that shows up, dies, heals a few people, dies on the cross, resurrects, and then leaves. He, he's God, the creator and sustainer, and you answer to him. And as Paul says, he is Lord. Verse 3, he's Lord, he's sovereign. This is his story. This is all about him. Effectively, Paul answers the question, is Jesus Lord of creation? And the answer is a resounding yes, of course he is. But what about the second question? Is Jesus Lord of the church? And the answer is once again answered in the affirmative, but how? Let's look at that together in verses 18 through 20. It says, in verse 18, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the sentence to reconcile all things to himself. Does that sound familiar? Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and how Jesus is sent by God to reconcile all things to himself. And here we see that. Why, why is it that all things will be reconciled to him, though? This is a different aspect of what we looked at last week. Why, why is it that all things will be reconciled to him, to Jesus, as if he were the one who the offenses were against? It's because of this, our sins are offenses against Jesus. Think about that. Lots of times we say, well, our offenses are against God, the Father, and well, that's true. Additionally, they're, they're offenses against God, the Son. If Jesus is the creator of all the world, that would mean that the original sin and every sin after that you or I have committed is all an affront to Jesus. And many times we think of our sin being against the Father and that Jesus is just some, some passive, uninvolved onlooker. And frankly, that's just not the case. Do you, do you feel the weight of that? In verse 20, look, it says, making peace by the blood of his cross, though. How significant. Not only is your sin an affront to the Lord Jesus, but it was his very blood shed on his cross that affords you the peace that you so desperately need. It's his blood that pays for the sin that you've committed against him. Let that rest on your shoulders. You owed a debt that you couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. So for the church, for the Christians this morning, Jesus is the Lord of the church. Absolutely. He is the Lord of creation. He spoke things into existence. Additionally, he's the Lord of the church. Why? Because he bought them. He purchased them with his own blood. He reconciled us to himself and to the Father. And so this morning, he is the Lord of the church, and we find our meaning in him, church. Christians, to this morning, we find our meaning in him. Verse 16 says, all things were created through him, and this is great, and for him. And then in verse 17 it says, and he is before all things. All things were created for him, and all things were created for him, or before, before or, and he is before all things. He's preeminent above all things. So everything and everyone that was ever created, everything that was ever created, is created and exists for Jesus alone. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with question one, and that's appropriate, right? Question number one, what is the chief end of man? Perhaps your children know the answer to this. Maybe somebody here knows. Does anybody know the answer to that question? What's the chief end of man? That's one way. Uh, <laughs> we're not much in unison this morning, but I think I heard the right answer. Man's chief end 
It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify the Godhead and enjoy him forever. We find our why this morning in in Jesus. We find our why. It's to glorify him. We We sang a song this morning that we will sing about his glory, about his majesty for all of eternity. That's what we'll do. That's our meaning. That's our purpose. So that's our meaning. But what about our message Church, we find our meaning in Christ, but we find our message in him. We find the message that has been given to us, the message that we heard of last week, this message of reconciliation. Look in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's that message of reconciliation that we looked at last week, that God has reconciled us. He's made us ambassadors, and he's given us this message that we're to give out. And what is that message? It's Christ. Paul said we preach Christ and him crucified. We have nothing else to give people. And so as a church this morning, Jesus is our meaning. Why is it all about him? Because he's our meaning, but he's also our message. We have nothing more to say, right? We can bring nothing to God but to cling to the cross of Christ, and that's what we give to the dying world. That's what we give to, a, to this world, to this city, and to that city that is without hope. We bring them the message of Christ. That's what we have, church. He is our message. It's the gospel. Now look down at verse 23, and we'll see our mission. Look down at verse 23. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We see here that Paul clearly states that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that's his mission, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that he's an apostle. Recently we talked about this word apostle. What does it mean? It means sent one. So Paul's saying, I am a servant of Christ. It's my mission to serve him. It's my mission to share in what he has sent me to do. It's his mission to proclaim the message of Jesus. And notice our mission is Jesus and not people. Think about that. There's a significant difference there. Our mission as Christians, as a church, whom Jesus is Lord over, our mission is not people. It's Jesus. Big difference there. We're people helping people find and follow Jesus. And and that why, why is it there? Because Jesus is worth the glory. He's worth their praise. And his sacrifice is for the elect of God, and we go out because he is worthy. So the, the, the mission is not that, that people be saved, but that Christ be glorified. And it's that view of Revelation chapter 7, this, this great cloud of group of people that are praising Jesus and making much of him, doing the work that we will do for all of eternity. That's the mission, that people, praise, that, that, that people who are not currently praising Jesus would begin to do that because he is worthy. Paul says, I'm, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and not of man. Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I can't be a servant of man and of God. He said, if, if I was a servant of man, I could not be the servant of Christ. He said, I'm the servant of man, and so the mission of the church is for you this morning. You say, well, I'm not an apostle. Well, yes, but we've, we've been sent. We are, the, we are Christ's disciples. We are his church. And we have his message in Jesus is that message, and Jesus is the mission. And so this is, Jesus is our meaning, he is our message, he is our mission, and he is our past, because he created us for his own purpose, and then he reconciled us after the fall, 
through the work on the cross. And he is our present because he daily intercedes on behalf of his blood and he sustains us. He's our future because we will spend eternity praising him because he alone is worthy. It wasn't that the church at Colossae didn't appreciate Jesus. They did. They, they did appreciate Jesus. But it was that they appreciated other false doctrines as well. And as a result, there was a serious cloud over the glory of Christ there in that church. And one commenter, commentator said of the heresy that was present there in that church, is he said, it didn't deny Christ. It didn't, de- didn't deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. Didn't say that he wasn't, it didn't say Jesus was a nobody. It ascribed to Christ some things, but it dethroned him as sovereign. It, it, it dethroned him as the ruler. And Paul just begins in verse 3 of chapter 1 that he is our ruler. He is our sovereign. He is our Lord. And so in a way, it took, it took away his sense of sovereignty. In essence, whoever Jesus was, he was in some way responsible for repairing the, the broken relationship between God and man. But other than that, he was just an interesting figure in their religious history. He was not their sovereign Lord, and he was not God. I can't help but think of old Doubting Thomas in, in John chapter 20. We, I, I love that, that series that as we walk through over the course of a year and a half, two years, we walk through the book of John. I love that part in chapter 20 where Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection, and Thomas isn't there. He shows himself to the disciples, and they're encouraged, and they're like, holy smokes, this is great. What does this change? They're thinking of the implications. Thomas wasn't there. So when Thomas gets back, he's got the hot dogs and the Slurpees, and he's like, hey, guys, I'm back. And they're like, you'll never believe what just happened. It was was crazy. Jesus just showed up. And he's like, whatever. Yeah, whatever. I know we've been praying too long. I warned you guys about that, right? So then he, they're like, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus showed up. Well, eight days later, Jesus shows back up again. Thomas had said, I, I won't believe it until I can see it. I won't believe it until I can actually touch the wounds and see for myself and inspect this, the scars on this guy. I won't believe that he's Jesus. So Jesus shows back up again eight days later. And immediately he calls out to Thomas. He just calls out to him and he says, believe in me, Thomas. Thomas walks up to Jesus He touches his wounded body, and he immediately exclaims, My Lord and my God. This is the high point of the gospel for me. This is one of the highest points. It says, here this skeptical, skeptical, skeptical man was confronted with the resurrected Jesus. It demonstrated that Jesus, what Jesus predicted about himself was true. That had some serious implications. It testified to the success of his mission of salvation. Entitled Jesus to the position of glory and proclaimed that Jesus is the Lord. My Lord and my God. By Lord, Thomas was implicating his submission to Jesus as a sovereign, as a ruler. And by God, he was saying that Jesus truly is deity. Jesus truly is the Son of God. So everything that he wondered about in the past, everything that he struggled with, all that doubt, it washed away and we see it in that Confession, as Thomas says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. What Thomas does with the rest of his life, it's actually a little bit unclear to us. We don't know if we can trust it, but church history says that he evangelized parts. He went away from there. and In his life, he evangelized parts of Iran. He travels into India. and He's actually been recognized as the founder of Malabar Christians, which are an indigenous Indian people group in uh, the southwestern portions and southwestern portions of India. And we read that he lived his entire life 
in ministry for Jesus and even died as a martyr. And his, his, his work is still being, you can still see it today in the, in the people, the Christians in India that bear his name. You see, Thomas realized in that moment he'd been doubting, he wasn't sure who Jesus was, there's a lot of questions in his mind, and as he sees Jesus, he realizes I was wrong. This changes everything. My Lord and my God, he submits to him. Everything in my life is all about you all this time. I was wrong. I thought this story was about me, Thomas says. And now he realizes this story isn't about me. I, I, I can't hold the, I can't bear the burden of this story, of, this, of the climax. I can't, I can't do the, the resolution. It's not on me, it's on you, Jesus. This is all about you. You are the true protagonist. You are the true hero of the story, and I submit myself to you. That's what Thomas said. He died as a martyr. He gave his life as a witness for Christ. And you see there that there was this shift that you don't notice at first glance, but it's, it's dynamic. It's ultimate. Thomas's life completely changes at that moment. And Thomas this morning is a testimony. He, he witnesses for us this morning that Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is God of the church and of creation. Thomas says it's all about Jesus. So what does this mean for you? Are you, are you willing to submit to that this morning? That it's all about Jesus. Can you say this morning that my Lord and my God. Can you say that to Jesus this morning? What does that mean? What would that look like in your life? What would that look like in the life of the church? Well, in your life, it's going to look like you submitting yourself to the commands of Jesus. It's going to, it's going to look like submitting yourself to the church of Jesus Christ here in Martinsburg. Why? Because this, this is his church. We are his people. And we have his words this morning. We submit ourselves to them on every way of life. On every area, be it our education, our relationships, or our family, we submit ourselves to, the, to Christ. And what does it look like as a church? Well, it means this. We're going to talk about Jesus a lot. This is his story. How unfitting it would be for us to make our lives, to make our, this gathering about anything other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation and the Lord of the church. Why would we do that? It means we're going to celebrate his rule in this world as we submit to his leading individually and corporately. It means that as individuals, we're going to have a top five. That's what it means. We're going to identify people in our life, even this week. We're going to forego, forego community groups, and we're going to say we're going to give this time. We're going to pray that God would work in these people's lives who are far from him, who do not worship Jesus when he is worthy to be worshipped. And so I'm going to spend this time as a family with this person or with this family for whatever, so you can see the Lord work in their lives. Because of these verses, we're going to plant churches. We've done that, and we're going to do that. I'm excited about In just a few months, we'll launch Hagerstown Church. How exciting is that? Why are we doing that? Because of Jesus. That's why we're doing that. Why do we send our senior pastor? Why will we send others in the months ahead, around the world and across the street? Why will we do that? Because it's all about Jesus. That's, that's what it will look like in our lives. Think about this song. I'll close with this. Where other lords beside him hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied him defy him still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. So we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save.
but Jesus Christ the Lord. Church, no other name is worthy this morning. It's all about Jesus. And as good theology always leads to doxology, I want to actually just leave you with this verse, this short verse, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from the church at Martinsburg. Feel free to share this message with a friend and find more sermons at martinsburgchurch.org sermons. The Church at Martinsburg is a body of people helping people find and follow Jesus.